We return today to our series in the book of Proverbs. This series was put on hold, as uh, we know, the last three weeks as we focused on the incarnation of Christ. Then we had opportunity to commune together at the Lord's table as we do on fifth Sunday mornings. And then last week, uh, a baptism and the opportunity to speak about baptism. Wasn't that a blessing? What a, I, I was ready to go to heaven after that service. It was great to hear those testimonies of faith, to witness uh, those who have identified with Christ. Uh, if, if, you, if you weren't encouraged by that, your blesser's broken. You, you need help. Uh, that was what a great time together. But we come back happily to our studies in the book of Proverbs and coming now to the end of chapter 6. If you'll make your way there, Proverbs chapter 6. This book, as we remember and come back into it here, preserves ancient instructions of a court sage or a father's counsel to his adolescent son. The father instructs and admonishes his son in how to live wisely in a morally dangerous world. And through this father's instructions, the counsel of our heavenly father flows to us as a community and flows to us in our immaturity. In these words, we are instructed to leave aside morally foolish ways and to live with moral skill and with biblical discernment, to arm ourselves for that and fit ourselves for such a life. So we come to Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 20. Are these words we've not heard before? Here we are again. Verse 20, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. This characteristic signal to a distinct line of instruction as the father again encourages his son to value and keep the father's commands. Here it is again, my commandment, your mother's instruction, hear the word of the Lord. Now, as you read that, I I think there's a temptation for us as we've worked our way through Proverbs to maybe give kind of a drowsy yawn here. We hear this over and over again, keep my commandments, listen to what I'm saying. We've heard it up to this point, and in chapter 7, we're going to read it again. These same types, this same type of admonition to listen and to heed wisdom. But I, I think we won't mention it perhaps next week, but let's stop here for a moment and really get this. Keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. This is something outside of us, external to us, that is counsel to guide and direct the way that we live. In themselves, these words point us on a very narrow way. Let me illustrate it this way. The 18th century French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau continues to exert profound influence upon our culture and the way that we train children, or don't. But Rousseau vehemently opposed all authoritarian social structures in the interest of a purely egalitarian society. Put that more simply, everybody was to be equal and no one was to tell anyone else what to do. Well, how do you figure out what's right, what's wrong, what you should do? You feel it. 
You respond to your innate desires, and everybody then is on equal ground to live as they wish. Rather than seeing morality as a set standard which people in authority, such as clergy and parents, were to train children to obey, Rousseau argued that morality should be defined by what a child wants and how a child feels. So here again, with that backdrop, we come to the book of Proverbs and we find a radically different life orientation, don't we? It comes across quite simply to us, keep your father's commands, forsake not your mother's teaching, but think of it in this light and think of it in light of how we believe children are to be trained in this culture. Skillful living is achieved. This is what we must get. Skillful living is achieved not by responding to my subjective feelings and desires. That will not lead me to wise living. Wise living is pursued by orienting my life and conforming my choices to an external standard. A standard of truth and to this standard of truth, authoritative counsel that teaches me what truth is and how I should live is my life. And so it is in that frame of mind, in conformity to that type of a worldview, an external word of counsel, lining my life up to that word of counsel, it's in that framework that the Father speaks and that we inculcate the book of Proverbs in its wisdom. And so we come here at verse 20 to another general call to heed parental wisdom. It's simple, straightforward. Keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching. Verse 21, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. Nothing new here. But children are to honor the counsel and instruction provided by godly parents, and indeed the immaturity of children, indeed the immaturity of adults whose souls are stuck at age 14, is revealed by a disregard of parental instruction, a disregard of authoritative instruction and counsel. So the immature naturally forget wise counsel. They resist authoritative teaching. They don't want to be told what to do and what to think. But those who live with moral skill and biblical discernment learn to steer their lives by an external authoritative standard of truth. And ideally, for children, this means heeding the instructions of mom and dad. I realize not every home is ordered that way. And there's horrifying home situations, but ideally, which Proverbs presents here to us, it is to listen to what mom and dad say, to understand their instruction, to learn from it, to receive it, to see it as a source of life, not as a source of pure irritation. And then binding this counsel upon our hearts and tying it around our necks, what does that mean? Obviously, figuratively, it means value it. Hang on to it at all cost. It's dear to your life, so keep it close. Why? Here's the value in valuing authoritative instruction. Verse 22. When you walk, 
they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. They'll never let you down. The they here, the Hebrew is actually a singular she, referring to the instructions of mother and father. They will lead you. This Hebrew word is interesting. It it is often used in the context of a shepherd leading a flock through difficulty. So these words of counsel will lead you through life like a shepherd, leading you through the difficulties of life. In one sense, you see, the Father's in a sense saying here, you don't need me. If you receive my counsel, if you take it into your soul and you allow it to guide you, you won't really ultimately need me. The commandments of your father and mother will walk before you as a guide wherever you go. Wisdom will watch over you while you sleep. And when you get up in the morning, wisdom will be there to talk with you. Happy is that child, that believer who has the constant companion of authoritative moral instruction, of a source outside of ourselves that counsels and steers and shepherds us to wisdom. Verse 23, he continues, For the commandment is a lamp, and a teaching, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. A lamp. In that day, a small clay pot holding olive oil in a fabric wick of some sort, serving like a flashlight might in our day. A small light, but enough to illumine a dark place, a dark room. Maybe some of you, a few of you know what I'm talking about, but you maybe were one day camping out at Camp Clearwaters way back in the day on the dark trail between the cabins and the lodge and had to make that journey in the dark. If you've ever done that, you know under the cover of those trees on a really dark night, you can't see anything out there long away from the city lights. And I remember from time to time walking on that path with a flashlight, and all you can see is just that little range of light in front of you, but it guides you down the trail. One time I tried to do that without a flashlight. It was ugly. It was scary. I got into trees and didn't know where I was, and it's, it's amazing what a little light will do. But the counsel that we bring into this world is like a flashlight on a trail. It enlightens the path. It helps us see where to go. Our world teaches us to walk out in that darkness with nothing. Just subjective feelings and desires. Just kind of make your way out there and find your way in this dark world. But this word of God that is given to us, this counsel of the Lord is like, a, is like a flashlight on that dark path. It keeps us from stumbling. It gives us direction. God teaches us that life is really lived by responding to reproofs of discipline which enlighten our path. Now, reproofs of discipline come from outside. By the grace of God, with our conscience, there are times we can instruct ourselves and rebuke ourselves. And that's good. But the reproofs of discipline as a way of life are external counsel that comes to us, that sets us straight and becomes a light for our path. Guidance in the way that we live. I don't know 
about you, but I, I really don't find reproof and correction enjoyable. It, it just isn't something that you receive real easily. In fact, I received a word of reproof this week from a faithful friend, and I bristled at it. You ever done that? Just, I, don't like, I don't want to hear that. I don't like that. I don't like to be straightened, corrected. But I think I sinned in failing to see his word as a light to my way. And I need to confess that sin this week. We need to orient our lives to not be defensive, but to receive the light of reproof. You're not thinking right here. You're not living right in this area. You need to change and correct. You know what's inside that resists that is a problem. And it's something that we need to work out of our lives and of our response. To realize that when there is a reproof, when there is a correction to our way, it is a grace of God to us. Now, they're not always right. And particularly as we mature, as we grow, sometimes there's pieces of rebukes that are really off track. But so often there's some truth in it that we must grasp, we must take in, not resist, because it is the way of life. It's the flashlight on the path. And how foolish it would be for us to be stumbling around in the dark on the trail, running into trees, and someone say, you need a flashlight, and us to say, mind your own business. Stay out of my life. Wouldn't we rather more wisely say, thank you, and turn on the light? That's what the reproofs of discipline are in our life, the corrective points that we encounter from place to place and in God's Word indeed. So by God's grace, this church, by God's grace, those of you who are parents in this assembly will provide a faithful body of instruction to the children of this church, to the believers of this assembly, such that we are pursuing wise living as we hear the truth. And as we return to the immediate context here, the father now returns to a line of instruction he's already discussed with his son. You get the idea, this is an ongoing conversation. The importance of living not by feelings, not by the dictates of the flesh, but by the light of counsel will, to provide a very vital example, verse 24, preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. He's picking up just one example here of how counsel will provide light on the path of life. There's a certain kind of woman out there you must avoid. Who is she? First of all, we notice here in verse 24 that she is immoral. It's a good translation here in the ESV. She is an evil woman. Her life orientation is at cross purposes with God's creative design and with His moral will. She is running in exactly the wrong direction. Secondly, she uses provocative, seductive speech. We notice there at the end of verse 24, the smooth tongue of an adulteress. That is to say, she says things a young man naturally wants to hear. Now, it's certainly true that her physical tongue is smooth, and that's temptation enough, perhaps, but the point here is that her speech is slippery. It's deceptive. 
and dangerously calibrated to lure a young man into her embrace. This is who she is. What we must do is learn to tune her out and tune in to what his parents have taught him to know about such a woman. So she is immoral, she's evil, she is provocative and seductive, she is thirdly an adulteress. Verse 24, the Hebrew word means stranger or foreigner. And I think the idea is that she is outside of his legitimate circle of intimacy, and indeed she is outside of her legitimate circle of intimacy. She's a stranger, a foreigner, in that covenantal sense. How do you resist such a woman? Well, we have to live life with skill. To recognize it is not all about him and her is going to be the line of instruction. As she appeals to him, he must also consider not just her and him, but he also needs to consider his parents. Bruce Waldke writes, Her tongue threatens to cut apart the very fabric of the godly home at the seam where the generations are sewn together. More on that in a moment, but it's, it's not just about him and her. It's about the results relationally in the family. So the skill is to recognize who she is, to recognize the implications to the family. The skill is to follow moral coaching out on the field of play, to be instructed, and then to apply that instruction, heeding wise counsel and avoiding moral failure. The skill is to figure out the kinds of people we need to avoid for our own good and for God's glory. There's people we need to touch, and there's people we need to run away from. Skill is knowing who that is, defining it rightly. So let me just pause here to say, young people particularly, the moral counsel you receive from godly adults in this church, the counsel that you receive from faithful parents as they seek to instruct you to honor God's will, that is your security against moral disaster. The challenge in your heart is often to see it as irritation, as over-repetition, as emphasizing small points at the cost of others, having a hobby horse from mom and dad, that kind of thing. No, it's your security in a morally twisted world. You would be a fool to leave your parental godly instruction to leave aside the teaching of the church as it is based on the Word of God. That would be foolish. Don't go there. Don't spurn that counsel. And again, for adults, we get stuck in our immaturity sometimes. And we need to recognize that my life is lived out through the instructive Word of authority that is based on God's authoritative Word. We need to respond to it. So there is, again, this general, overall call to respond to wisdom. And now, secondly, another specific warning against sexual immaturity. We have the general call, heed wisdom, and now, again, this specific warning against sexual immorality. Verse 25, do not despise her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelids. The Father's going to get specific here. 
Not going to just leave it out there as general instruction, but let's get specific because we live in a specific world. There's a real world with a lot of danger. And here's what I want you to get. This is a central thesis, he says. At the point of sexual attack, we make a choice to desire God or to desire a body. That's the choice. It's not sin to recognize that a woman is beautiful or that a man is good-looking. That's not wrong. It may be sinful to investigate someone's physical attractiveness, but it's not inherently evil to recognize such beauty. Genesis 29, God Himself tells us that Rachel was, quote, beautiful in form and appearance. Genesis 39, God tells us, quote, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Why does God say that? Because He can see. He made them. They are attractive in form and appearance. There is no question then that Rachel had a nice figure and was attractive. And Joseph was well built and good looking. It's not evil to recognize that. God sees that. He references it. But sin enters into the equation when we choose to desire an attractive person for ourselves. To use that person in either actuality or in fantasy to stroke or satisfy our sexual passions. So recognition is not itself sin, but the temptation comes in when we say, I want what God has not given me. And in some way, I'm going to satisfy that desire. Such desires are often encouraged and fueled by the way the seductress uses her eyelids, flitting or glancing to communicate a sensual message. We can talk with our eyes, and she does it. And her speech is very clear. There's a certain look that says to him, come and get me, I'm available. So what the Father is saying is, discern such a look and resist it. You have my coaching here. As you get out into the field of play, you have to put this into practice. You've got to discern when she's sending that kind of message. And obviously turning it around, women, when a man is sending that kind of message. You've got to see it. He then moves to talk through the consequences of failing to heed this moral instruction, beginning at verse 26. For, here's a reason, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. If I could say it this way, you'll be eaten alive. That's why you avoid her. You will be eaten alive. The Hebrew text allows here two distinct interpretations, and you see the the footnotes, the marginal reading, it's, it's difficult to know what the Hebrew text is saying, so I think we need to work it out just briefly here. But prostitute and married woman may be two different people. The prostitute can be purchased for a meal, then he's saying, but the meal of the adulteress is you. Something like that. And that's the way the ESV takes it. So the point is that mar- marital infidelity is the worst kind of sexual sin. It's not saying that it's okay, 
to be with a prostitute, but it's saying that adultery is a particularly evil thing. The second way of reading the Hebrew text is that the prostitute and the married woman are the same person. We should translate then the Hebrew text as saying, as she reduces you to a loaf of bread, she also stalks your life. You're left with nothing, and she eats you alive. And that's the marginal reading of the ESV. And I would somewhat prefer that interpretation because almost every prostitute in that day was a married woman, and the parallel between the two would have been very obvious to them, not so obvious to us. Also then, it doesn't seem to distinguish here prostitution and adultery as somehow uniquely distinct sins, though certainly there is a difference. But uh, however we take it, I will move past that, we're, we're to know that an illicit relationship is destructive. That much is clear, whether this is two women or one, whatever the point is there. The valiant wife, do you remember Proverbs 31 it talks about her finding prey for her family. The Hebrew words that's, that's there is like a lioness. She goes out and gets prey for her family. The same word is used here essentially saying, you are the prey. You're the one that's being devoured. You will be eaten alive if you don't listen to this counsel. And it, listen here then how he piles up the warning. Secondly, you will get burned Verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Picture long flowing robes, coals on a fire, scoop them out, hold up your robe and put those coals in a robe. You're going to take them to your house and start a fire there. I mean, that isn't going to work. You walk on hot coals. I realize there's somebody somewhere that's done that and not been burned. I don't know how they do it, but the, the, the normal people of us, I can't even walk on a hot parking lot in bare feet. You walk on coals with bare feet, you're going to burn your feet. Listen, you know that. You get involved with this woman, you're going to get burned. You will get burned. Do you think you can do these things and get by with it? Well, no more can you get by with her. Verse 29, he who goes into his wife, none who touches her, that's a euphemism for sexuality, none who touches her will go unpunished. He's counseling his son, if you engage in sex outside of marriage, you're playing with fire. Don't do it. You'll be eaten alive. You'll get burned. Thirdly, you will never compensate for your sin. Verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. What's that saying? These verses must be read, I think, in light of verse 29 and what's also to follow. But the point is, if a thief steals because he's starving to death, the meaning of the Hebrew word, compassionate people are going to despise him on some level, but not ultimately. I mean, the guy's starving to death. It's wrong to, to steal, but boy, there's a reason why he's stealing. He's got nothing to eat. Yet even that person for whom we can have some compassion will be held accountable. 
And no society is going to thrive long if it gives people freedom to steal, no matter the reason. So certainly in that day, if he's caught, he's going to pay sevenfold, even this guy that we feel a little bit bad for. If he pays back seven times the amount he stole, that, and I think probably figuratively, whatever is necessary for compensation under the law, there were different percentages. Who's going to say much more after that? The guy was starving. He stole some food. He's paid it back seven times over. Let's move on, right? If a thief... A thief can purchase his reputation back depending on the circumstances. But in contrast, number four, your reputation will be destroyed. Verse 32. So the thief can pay back, but verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. The thief's disgrace may be wiped away eventually by paying back, restoring. People understand on some level he's starving. Did you take someone else's mate? You cross this line with them? You're destroying yourself. And your disgrace will never be wiped away. The translation here, he who does this lacks sense. The Hebrew speaks of being deprived of heart, of stealing one's heart and not being sensitive and awake. It refers to one who's lacking a moral center. Sexual immorality is a self-destructive act that destroys one's reputation in the community because it points to a dead heart. It speaks here of wounds referring to the community's prosecution of the sinner. Disgrace refers to the community's perception of the sin. So again, in contrast with the thief we've talked about, this person will walk in disgrace. There will be a prosecution and there will be a perception that cannot be escaped. And so it says to us, if you are in a position where you have not entered into a sexual relationship in this world, Please know that sexual sin is the kind of sin that people never forget. It's the kind of sin that you will never forget. Stay clear of breaking God's law. There's a result that comes that cannot be escaped. Now, on the other hand, we need to sound a word of grace to sinners, of course, or it would not be a complete message While one's reputation may suffer irreparable damage, we gather today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who provides and secures forgiveness of sin and its full forgiveness. For those who repent of their unfaithfulness to the Lord in this area or in any area, there is release from guilt and restoration of fellowship with God and with His people. That's the mercy of the way of Christ. This is one area of temptation, one particular sin. But in every area of sin, as all of it plays out in our lives, there is a source of forgiveness. I hope that's why you're here today. 
You come to say the Lord Jesus Christ has died to pay the penalty of sin. He has risen from the dead. And I walk in His forgiveness. I come to the Lord's gathering with His people to proclaim this truth and to celebrate His forgiving grace. There is forgiveness for all sinners. Now the consequences of sin may never die in this life. But we can walk in fellowship with the Lord. So there's this this delicate balance we need to strike of a stern warning to stay away from sin while on the other hand to speak grace to those who have violated that calling and that law. There is forgiveness with Christ. Receive that forgiveness through repentance of sin and move forward in confidence of His restoring grace. Well, a fifth warning is granted here in verses 34 and 35, and it is saying you will create bitter enemies. Your reputation will be destroyed, and that's connected very directly to the fact that you will create bitter enemies. Verse 34, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Again, going back to the thief, And the contrast there, in that culture there was a significant degree of retributive justice that was put into the hands of relatives. We think of the avenger of blood. If someone murders someone else under the old covenant, the relatives were then to go after that individual who committed the murder and to uh, gain justice, that is to take that murderer's life. It was a matter of family pride and responsibility to avenge certain sins. And this, adultery, is one of them. We don't have any categories for that in our world, and just as good as it is bad. But in that situation, if adultery has taken place, then that husband was responsible to make it right. And he would do something, think in terms often of smaller villages where everyone knows one another. It was his job to take vengeance. Unlike the thief, says the father, you will find no way to compensate. You'll never compensate this violated spouse. The violated husband will be filled with rage and wounded pride and will show no mercy and will not be silenced with a bribe. I, you, you get the idea here. Father's really not holding back, is he? He's saying this is really, really bad. And so you have this younger man, this boy, being trained, and he's thinking about this man out there who's married, who's undoubtedly older than him, and he's thinking about that man's rage against him, the community's rage against him, he's saying, this is not a good idea. Don't do this. So, in a sense, The father brings before his son, and our heavenly father presents to us the illustration of a young man who encounters a seductive woman. We might imagine for sake of argument, and it would be very fitting for their culture, that as a young man in the community, he comes in contact with the wife of an older man. This woman is his age, considerably younger than her husband, whom she has come to despise. She's very attractive. She is sexually experienced and uninhibited. 
She has strong desires that find no fulfillment in her marriage, and she finds him. In the fulfillment of his daily business, let's say that he delivers supplies for a merchant. He comes to her house and drops off these supplies, and she looks at him. He catches her eye. And the next delivery, she casts a lustful look his way, a look fully intended to entrap him, a look fully intending to draw him in. Come to me. Let's drink forbidden waters together and satisfy our natural passions, just you and me alone. In that moment, the only dam that is holding back the floodwaters of his sensual passions is what? It's the counsel of God. It's the word of instruction that he's received from God's word through the mouth of his parents. That's the only thing that holds back that flood. On a physical level, all is about passion and desire. He's driven by powerful urges. But he is also armed with the truth and he takes refuge behind the wall of wisdom. He knows that there is a God who sees all. He knows that God has a perfect design for the gift of sexuality, and he knows disaster will follow the illicit venting of his disordered desires. She's hauntingly attractive. She is available to him. But sinning against law, against God's law, and sinning against her husband will not end well. He knows this. She cannot vow lifelong fidelity to her husband, break that vow with him, and then life just goes on without a wrinkle. That is a fantasy. And he needs to poke a pin in that fantasy balloon and pop it. He wants to think of this as flattering. He wants to think of her attractive appeal to him as restricted to being just between him and her. But he knows God's counsel. He can hear the echoes of his father's instruction. And so he knows through that training, through that counsel, this is not about him and her alone. This is about this woman's husband. And we could add here, present or future. This is about his parents and what they've taught him. It's about the community that will inevitably discover the horror of his sin. It's about his future relationship with a wife of God's choosing and the sexual pleasure that they can find together as husband and wife. And it's ultimately about his relationship with the Lord. Remember what Joseph said when tempted with Potiphar's wife, how can I sin against God? An opportunity lies before him to pursue sexual pleasure, but it is also an opportunity to ruin his life. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but that season is always short-lived. 
This is an opportunity to act in the light of God's good counsel, to hear the word from outside, to not be driven merely by the external and by the desires of the flesh, but to listen to the authoritative counsel of God's word and navigating the dark path of lust. He holds out the light of God's truth, just a little lamp in the darkness. But he holds out that truth and he says no. And he chooses to love God and trust his purposes. You know the strength for this on this sin and on every sin in our lives is really worked out the same way. To perceive the temptation, to discern the external counsel of God's authoritative word and with that light to begin to make right decisions. The strength for this is not in ourselves, however. It's in the righteousness of another. It's in Jesus redeeming us from sin and pouring out upon us His Holy Spirit to empower our obedience. We cannot walk with wisdom in this world simply with the counsel of God in our head. Simply knowing the facts about what God has revealed. We must be indwelt by the Spirit of God. And only by His Spirit can he, will He empower and strengthen us to do what is right in times of temptation. So I think as we consider this instruction, that it certainly is instruction to us as a church to have this conversation. I mean, we're having it here, right? We didn't skip Proverbs chapter 6, 20 and following. We need to have this kind of conversation. Satan's having the conversation all the time in the world and he's saying some other things. We need to talk about this as a church. We need to develop relationships with one another where we can discuss sexual temptation. This is God's counsel to us. It's His goodness to us. It's not a topic to be kept somewhere else. It's a topic for the church. It's a topic for the home. Sometimes parents really struggle with this. It's a hard topic to have. Uh, talk to me if you've run into a teen who welcomes this conversation. I mean, it's just not an easy conversation always to have. But we need to have it. We need to talk about it in our homes. With mates, it is a call to us to pursue marital fidelity. Are you shaky are you shaky as a husband and wife? Are there sources from outside that are providing temptation and drawing you away from one another? This isn't something to ignore. It's something to address. I say again to those who are not married, wait until marriage. This is the clear word of the Lord to us here, the clear instruction. That isn't easy. No one ever said it was easy, but it's right and it's good. There's a price to pay for violating God's counsel. Don't go there. All of this is very countercultural in a world in which people think that the ultimate freedom is doing whatever feels good. We even have philosophers telling us that's what freedom is. To follow your own desires to do what you want to do. Let no one else tell you what's right or wrong or how you're going to think or how you're going to act. Oh, how blessed we are by the redeeming Savior. 
we come to know that the ultimate freedom is not by our own passions and desires being expressed, but by an external word that took on flesh and dwelt among us and gives us his life-saving word. And so in thanksgiving, we can come to enjoy sins forgiven and a clear conscience to walk not in shame, but in thanksgiving to the God who saves and redeems in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are the purest of pleasures forevermore. We walk in fellowship with this God. As broken, fallen, disobedient people, we come to this light. May God draw us ever closer. And may our relationships within our families and within this church be drawing one another to this light, to this truth, to this standard of purity. Not because we're different and good, better than other people, but because we have received the living Word of God. Let's bow for prayer. We need, Father, your strength. We need your counsel and your help and aid. Preserve this church from the destructive effects of sexual sin. We're in a battle. We know it. But I pray that you would be gracious to this assembly. I pray for moms and dads as they teach, as they model faithfulness in their marriages to their children. I pray for those who, do, who are not at this point in their life married. And I ask, Father, that they would find here a word of hope, a word of warning, a light that steers them and counsels them rightly. And I pray that you would gain glory for your name in this assembly among your people as you help us to see this truth and to obey it. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.